If you are a visitor here, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for giving us a, a test drive. We hope that you, um, that you decide to stay with us. We are in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17 this morning. Uh, we'll, we'll pray here in just a minute. Um, yeah, so thank you, Rhonda. Yesterday we had, we had food bank, and it was, man, we had a ton of produce. We had a, a ton of, of stuff outside, and we had a ton of cars, and I mean, it was like a well-oiled machine. It was amazing how quickly everything went through. Uh, and again, it's, it's, a, it's our monthly miracle. I, we received so much, and we're wondering again how we're going to get rid of it all, how is it all going to go, with, what are we going to do, and then it all just happens. At the end of the day, we're, we're cleaning up, and um, all these people got served, and we were talking, and it just think that need is going to continue to be there and continue to grow, that, um, you know, it's good to see folks from our community reaching out, and it's good to see them getting help, but I just can't help but think that I was listening to the news this morning, which don't do that, just FYI, but I was listening this morning, and they are talking that um, we might see a recession uh, coming in our economy, and if so, then um, we're just going to see a lot of folks that are hurting, and that's going to tie right into what we're going to talk to you today about um, about loving people the way that Jesus does. So uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we have opened your word in front of us. We're going to walk through your scripture. And we just ask that, first of all, Lord, we, um, we lay last week in front of you. We lay all of our the good things, all the blessings you have poured out. We lay all of our misses. Lord, we, we know that there are times that we... Um, that we missed the mark last week. We lay those things at your feet. We ask for forgiveness. We ask to be washed and to be made new again, that as we would go out into next week, that thank you for a second chance. Thank you for a breath this morning. Open your heart and open your mind to us that as we go through your word, that we could draw closer to you, that whatever it is that you and, and the Holy Spirit and John wanted us to know today, that that's what we would receive, that whatever we need to equip us as we go forward to, we see so many people in need, Father, we see so many people that are hurting, that are suffering, that help us to reach them, help us to serve them the best that we can. We ask all of that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So again, we're in, in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It's the very beginning of the the chapter of John chapter 13. It says this, it says, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, 
And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Our setting for today is, uh, this is the, the Thursday meal. This is the meal that they're doing to celebrate Passover. Um, it's uh, interesting to talk about this. There's, we've got a few passages from the other Gospels as well, but there's a little bit of reconciliation to do because if you grew up in, in Israel, in the northern kingdom, uh, the Galileans, you would have had your Passover meal on Thursday night instead of Friday night. Um, so the Galileans and the Pharisees had adopted a different reckoning for the day. So we're going we're gonna to learn a word in Hebrew, and that word is ona. It means time or season. So a, 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 a day is divided into two onat. That's the plural of ona. And it begins at sunrise and ends at sunset. That's the daytime ona. The nighttime ona begins at sunset and ends at sunrise. So sunset to sunset was one day or two onat. That's the traditional way that um, the Hebrews would have reckoned a day. But the Galileans and the Pharisees had adopted sunrise to sunrise as a day, whereas the Judeans and the Sadducees kept sunset to sunset as a day. And it probably worked out well. We're in Jerusalem. It probably worked out well that not everyone was having their Passover meal at the exact same time. And we're talking that probably about a million people have come into to Jerusalem for Passover. So dividing it up probably worked out um, logistically a little bit better. Plus, I can imagine if you, know, if you think about all the restrictions of the Sabbath day, if you didn't have all those things to serve your evening meal where you could actually get up and work and serve, might make it a little bit easier. I would probably choose the Thursday versus the Friday. I would like to have lamps lit. I would like to be able to carry things over certain weights. All of those restrictions I would like lifted for when I was making a big meal, but I'm messy and make a lot of pots and pans when I cook. Clearly, these you know, people were able to do it better than, than I certainly could. But you can tell in the Gospels that the apostles are Galilean, um, that Jesus and the apostles, they gather on Thursday night to celebrate the Passover, um, to have the Passover meal. However, as Jesus is on the cross on Friday, lambs are still being slaughtered in the temple courts for the Judeans and the Sadducees, for them to eat on Friday night. So if we were to look at verse 1, like we did, and then jump down to verse 29 and 30, it says, since Judas had changed charge of the money, some thought, because Jesus is going to send Judas out, and really Judas is going out to betray him, but some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival. Right? It's, this is Thursday night, so not everything is closed, and there's still preparations going on for the other folks to celebrate. So Judas leaves here shortly, and everyone says, oh, he must have gone to go out to, uh, to buy something or to get something for the poor. Something must have been going on. So as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was nighttime. So we're going to compare that. We're going to flip in our Bibles over to Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 through 19. These are just parallel passages that talk about this time 
in the, in the scriptures. It just says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Mark 14, verses 12 through 16 Exactly the same thing. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of the disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Luke 22, verses 1 through 16, again, just the exact same thing. It says, Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And the point is that we have good confidence Jesus and the disciples have gathered on Thursday night to celebrate Passover and to eat the Passover meal. So Thursday night or early Friday morning, Jesus is arrested. By 9 a.m., he is on the cross. And by sunset, he is in the tomb. And then Sunday, he is risen. So they are in Jerusalem at this upper room of this unnamed man where the Passover meal has been prepared. And John gives us two things as the context. It was just before the Passover festival. We just talked about that in great detail. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And this was the theme. Remember, we were talking about this last week, that time was up. That for three years, Jesus has been telling the disciples he was leaving soon. If we were to flip back to chapter 12, it says exactly this. It says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah's, Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. While you walk, you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So again, John gives us those two parts as setting, that it was right before the Passover and that Jesus knew 
his hour had come. Then John tells us something absolutely amazing. That Jesus loved his own who were in the world and that he loved them to the end. Now, we expect this of God and Jesus, but remember that our theme for today is love and our takeaway for today is to try to love with the heart and with the humility of Jesus. Most of us are familiar with, with John 3.16, right? It says, what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If we were to zoom in, notice in there it says, for God so loved the world, and that it says whoever believes in him. Those are broad statements. That's not what John says here. That, that's still the agape form of love. That's still that majesty form of love. It's not, when we remember we were looking at the, the form of Lazarus, when, when um, you know, it talks about how, how much Jesus loved Lazarus, that was a friendly kind of love. That was a phileo kind of love. This is agape love. So what's the difference? Here, John uses this word idios. It means private or separate or belonging to himself. John is saying that Jesus loved his own. In these last hours, Jesus is thinking about how he loves his own people, the ones that are separate, the ones that belong to him. So the question is, who does this apply to? Well, clearly it applies to the disciples. That's who is there. That's present in the room. Those are the people that are there. So when Jesus is saying he loves his own, he's talking about them. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't love everybody else. Surely he does. But this particular part, he is setting apart his own. He's saying, I'm separating these guys out as my own. If we were to flip over to John chapter 17, this is where this gets broadened out to the church, to the believers, to anyone who has taken Jesus as Lord and Savior. So he's talking immediately to the disciples in the room. But we can broaden this out. We have to be careful when we do this. But we have John chapter 17 that tells us that it's okay for us to apply this to the church in general. Because it says right here, it says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In them, I in, sorry, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to a complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Right there. Jesus is broadening this out to the church. Jesus loves the disciples and loves us, those who have chosen Christ. He loves us, what does it say? To the end. He loves us to the end. So what promise does that have? What promise does Jesus' love have? What does he give to believers? John chapter 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's a promise to us. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. As to say that Jesus will lay down his life for us 
and that he will know us, that we will know Jesus and that he will know us. John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. That's a command for us, that we should listen to Jesus' voice. Jesus says, again, I know them and they follow me. That's a command for us, that we should follow Jesus. Then he says, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are some beautiful promises, aren't they? That those that he calls his own will have eternal life, they will never perish, and that no one will snatch them out of his hand. And those are the promises. Those are absolutely amazing. So we're going to put those aside for a moment, though, because those are heavenly promises from God, aren't they? They are. They're amazing heavenly promises from a Messiah. We want to step it down, though, to the human level. You guys ever see the movie Notting Hill? It's one of my wife's absolute favorite movies, right? Anybody ever see that? Blue Door, love that movie. There's a part in there, it's the very end of the movie, it's like the key point. It's where Julia Roberts is standing in front of Hugh Grant. She says this line, she says, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Love is pretty great. This is love. Jesus is saying, love you. I love you guys. Just a guy standing here with my guys, standing here with my own, and I love you. I love you. Whether it's brothers and sisters or parents or family or friends or co-workers, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, the love we share is great. It's pretty amazing. Handshakes, hugs, smiles, nods, waves. A voice on the phone, a text. My mother-in-law, she uses it exclusively. I think she has the exclusive rights to that little purple heart emoji. No, it's her every time I see it. John says Jesus loves his own, and he loves them to the end. That's pretty great. It's pretty great to have someone that chooses you, that loves you, that advocates for you, calls you, and is willing to die for you. And Jesus prays for you. Isn't that incredible that Jesus prays for us? He prays for us to the Father and prays for you to hear so that you can know the heart and mind of God. And so we know how to pray. If we were to flip over to John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, it's exactly this. It says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. I would underline verse 17. This is my command. Love each other. Love each other. That's the command. I remember it was quite a few years ago uh, when I was uh, volunteering for the sheriff's department. We had to go on a, on a body recovery this is when uh, Wolford Reservoir was, was brand new. It was brand new reservoirs, worst diving I've ever done. When a reservoir is brand new, all the vegetation is still underneath the water. And when you're, when you're diving, it's Colorado diving is cold and it's dark anyway. And then you're getting hit in the face constantly by these plants. 
because, you know, it's still a brand new reservoir and there's still plants under the water. We're there, and what had happened was there was a group of young men. They were late teens, early 20s. They had gone out fishing, a brand new reservoir. They had decided to, to go out fishing, a little aluminum boat. One of them was a, was a Marine. He was on leave from the Marine Corps. These were all high school buddies. They'd known each other for quite a long time. And as happens in Colorado, an afternoon storm came up. Wind came up, tipped the boat over, and the other boys made it. But they made it because that young Marine made sure that his friends made it, and he didn't. He gave his life for them. He made sure that his friends got to the shore and lost his life in doing it. That's exactly what it says here is giving your life for your friends. That young Marine drowned saving his friends. And that is the kind of sacrifice respected in the Bible. We want to contrast that because we can get these ideas of, of martyrdom kind of confused in our heads. And we don't want to do that, that we don't want to be looking around to die for opportunities to sacrifice ourselves, but we do want to have that humility that we put others above ourselves, that we love each other above ourselves. That's the whole message of the passage today, is to be willing to sacrifice for the love of others. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do when he goes to the cross. We are not looking to die in the name of God. We are looking to put everyone else ahead of ourselves, to take the lowest rung on the ladder. And here's the thing, that human love is not like godly love. It's not. Human love can be finicky. We're finicky. It can come and go. We get tired and frustrated and cranky. We can say and do mean things to the people that we love. Now, this love, the love Christ has for us, the love Christ gives to us, the love Christ asks us to give to each other is unconditional love. Love that seeks nothing in return. We are called to love people who can do nothing for us. We are called to love people who hate us and who despise us, just as our Lord was hated and despised. Love is funny. The world is funny. Isn't it? Love is one of the strangest things because you give love, but you never run out. It's not like you're expending a resource, like you're going to empty yourself, like you can give too much love. It's funny that way. You would think, well, if I give away all my love, then I'm not going to have any. Love is, doesn't work that way. When you give love to people, you're full, and the person that you give to is full. It's a funny thing. Nothing else in the world works that way. And love usually doesn't cost the giver anything. Smiles and hugs and kind words and helping hands... Now, sometimes we give gifts, right? Food or clothes or shelter, money, something to touch the heart of someone we love. But really, we are either meeting a need or telling the other person that we see them and that we love them, right? I saw you didn't have food or clothing or that this was worn out or broken or I saw that you like flowers or chocolates or Mexican food, so I got you some. Now, those things do cost money, but really, love is free, and love is funny. When we give love, we don't feel empty. It feels good to give. When we give in secret, it feels good. When we give in person or in groups, it feels good. You see, usually when you give something away, you don't have it anymore, but not love. When you give, you also receive. The warmth of goodness washes over you. And the receiver feels full too. They feel loved, cared for, seen, appreciated, strengthened, renewed. 
both the giver of love and the receiver of love feel better and more full for the giving. That's funny, isn't it? Love is powerful. Love breaks down walls. It breaks down barriers. And relationships, it's remarkable what a simple act of love can do. Relationships, sometimes you drift apart. Sometimes you have space. Sometimes you have distance. Sometimes you have conflict. It's amazing what a simple act of love or care can do in bridging those divides and bringing people back together. When one person extends an olive branch or does an act of service, it can start the healing process, can't it? John chapter 13, verse 1b says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, no message about love is complete without going to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And now, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We're going to finish our look at love with Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 39. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If someone needs a beginning to follow Christ, tell them to start by loving Christ. That's right there in Matthew chapter 22. If you start with genuinely wanting to love, to build a relationship with Christ, you can't go wrong. Why? Because everything else will follow. I am continuously confessing my sin before God. Why? Because I love Jesus and I want to keep his commandments. I messed up, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. But I didn't do what I said I would. So I tell Jesus all about what I did wrong. I ask him to tell me what I'm doing wrong and how to fix it. Then I move on. I get up and try to get the next one. Those are two hallmarks of the Christian you can listen for. One is love. Are they genuinely seeking to love God and to love other people? The other is that continuing commitment to repentance. A Christian is not without sin. They are, however, burdened by sin. It bothers us. And we continuously confess before God and seek to do better, to love, to honor, and to obey God. So Jesus knows his hour has come. And John wants us to know how much Jesus loves the disciples, loves us, and is resolved to head to the cross. In that contrast, then, verse 2 sticks out, right? Suddenly, John switches tracks. He goes and talks about Judas. He says, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. It's a pattern that John has repeated throughout. He's going to talk to us. He's going to give us a teaching of Christ. 
And then he's going to give us a picture of unbelief. He's going to give us someone that's the antithesis of what he is talking about. Sometimes it's the Sadducees and Pharisees. A lot of times those examples are that. In this case, he talks about Judas. Remember that just like salvation, condemnation, it takes two parts. Judas chose to betray Jesus. Judas hardened his own heart, and then God gave him over to Satan. And Satan, for his part, is buying time. He knows what is coming. Remember those, the demons when uh, the crazy guy in the cemetery and the demons say, I, you know, we are legion. Remember that part when we're talking about those guys? What do they say? They say, what do you have to do with us, Jesus? Why are you here? It's not time yet. Why are you bothering us? It's not time yet. I want more time. It's a crazy thing to think that demons and Satan don't want to go to hell, right? That should bother us greatly, that even those guys don't want to go there. So Satan is buying time. Because Satan knows when the fullness of the church is reached, that is what kicks off the end times. So if he can lead people astray, if he could tempt the Messiah into sin or disobedience like he tempted Adam and Eve, if he could tempt Judas to betray, he can buy a little more time. But it's hard to understand, Judas, isn't it? It's hard to understand how anyone could travel with Jesus, live with Jesus, hear the teachings, see the miracles. He watched Lazarus come out of the tomb, and he chose the world instead. Judas did. He chose the world after everything he had seen. If we were to flip back to John chapter 11 after the raising of Lazarus, that is when Caiaphas, the high priest in the Sanhedrin, resolved to kill Jesus. Right then, Judas knew they weren't raising an army. They weren't taking the throne. No, Jesus was going to do what he said he would do. He was going to die. So right then, Judas resolved to get paid and then to get out of town. It won't end the way he thinks, though, will it? And for those of us who might think that Jesus is harsh or judgmental, for anyone who thinks that God is out to condemn, not to save, Listen to this next part. Listen to when we talk about this washing of the feet. Judas gets his feet washed by Jesus. Judas is hand-fed bread and wine from the Savior as part of this meal. He's not excluded. Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows what's in his heart, knows the betrayal that is coming, and serves him anyway, pleads with him anyway, begs with him anyway, knowing what he is going to do. John 13, verses 3 through 5 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I was thinking about first century chacos. Anybody have? I don't know, Tevas were the thing when I was, was in high school. Everybody wore, wore Tevas. Your feet get dirty and smelly, just if you didn't know, especially teenage boy feet. They're not pleasant. So these guys have been tromping through the mud and the muck, the dust of Jerusalem, and they come to this place of meal. Now, it just tells us that something must have gone wrong because normally at a Jewish household, when you would walk up to the door, there would be two basins. There would be one on the ground for you to wash your feet, and there would be one for you to wash your hands. And they had a special, special saying. So you would walk up, you would wash your hands, they would say a prayer as they were washing their hands to be both ceremonial clean and physically clean before going into a house to 
eat. Something has gone amiss. The meal has already started, and the feet have not been washed. So Jesus, he takes off his outer robe, kind of strips down to his underclothes there, grabs a towel, grabs a basin, fills it up, and starts to wash the disciples' feet. In a wealthy household, this would be the role of a servant. Someone would do that. Obviously, normally you would do it by yourself if you were just the common folk. But Jesus takes that role. He lowers himself and takes the role of a servant, washing his disciples' feet. And it gives us this beautiful picture. So Jesus, King Jesus, Lord Jesus, grabs a towel and a basin and gets to washing. And Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. This is one of those intimate, uncomfortable parts of the Bible, isn't it? picture a grown man washing the feet of grown men. There's, it's one of those parts where you're like, man, that's, ah, that's a little intimate, isn't it? It's like when the ladies, you know, wipe Jesus' feet with a perfume and with their hair, or when they anoint his head with oil. It's, it's intimate. It's these intimate moments of worship. It's these intimate moments of contact. They're uncomfortable, but it gives us this beautiful picture of Jesus' heart, that Jesus taking this low position to show love to show affection. And I have to tell you, thank goodness that we have Peter. Because Peter sees what is going on, and he says, at least what I would say, right? Thanks, Peter, because I have to tell you that I am not really keen on the idea of the Lord of the universe washing stinking, dirty, muddy feet. I think it should be the other way around. People should be taking turns watching Jesus' feet. And as usual, I don't know why, but Jesus has a better plan than mine. So Peter speaks up. He says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And Peter says what I would say. He says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Oh. Then Peter says what I would say. He says, well, then, Lord, let's do the whole thing. Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. If we're going to get this thing clean, I want to be clean. If I want to have part... Let's have part. Again, Jesus says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. And Peter, he says, Lord, it isn't right for you to serve me. You are the Messiah, God incarnate, the Redeemer. We worship you. And Jesus says, I'm playing chess on a different level, Peter. This washing I give... I'm the only one who can give it. And if you don't let me wash you, you aren't my sheep, and you can't be with me. When we become believers, we are born again, born into a new life with Christ. And that's what the washing that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being born again. If we were to flip over to John chapter 3, verse 3 through 18, it tells us exactly this. It says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is being born again. It's mandatory. If we are not born again of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked the pertinent question. He says, how can someone be born again when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. That's a practical question. What do you mean by being born again? What do you mean, Jesus? And Jesus answers, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Okay, I get that. My mom gave birth to me. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. Okay, so there's a second birth, the spirit birth. It says you should not be surprised at that. You must be born again. Must. That's not optional. You must be born again. It says 
Nicodemus says, how can this be? When you were born from your mother, you were born of flesh. And when we choose Christ and repent of our sins, Jesus says we are born again, born of the Spirit. Just as Moses, this is verse 15 or 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus gives us a practical answer. He says, remember that story from Exodus? There was a, a sickness in the camp. Moses killed the snake and put it on a stick and stuck it in the camp. And anyone who looked at the snake was, was healed. Jesus says, I'm going to be killed and hung on a stick. Why? So that sick people can look and be healed. First part, though, is we have to realize that we're sick. We have to realize that we are fallen sinners in need of a savior. We are sick with sin, and it will kill us if we don't find a cure. And what is the cure? Looking on, believing on Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior. Then we get right to where we were before, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that what? Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to do what? To save the world through him. And it says, whoever believes in him, here it is, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Believe in Jesus, look on Jesus, be washed by Jesus, and be healed of the sin that leads to death. We recognize the sin that is the sickness leading to death. We confess our fallen state to Jesus. We look on him, we call on him, we believe in him. Now, for some people, that moment is like being struck by lightning. They're transformed. For others, it's a slow process of moving from darkness to light. Regardless, the believer, the Christian, has marked their life with repentance and confession, turning away from the wrong course and heading on the right course. This is in Romans chapter 10. Let's look at it another way. It's Romans chapter 10 from 9 through 13. It says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do I need to do to be saved? Declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that takes us back to 13a. Because Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Okay, I get it. I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart and Jesus washes away my sin. I'm with Peter. Lord, wash all of me. Do it. Wash all of me. I want to be with you. I want to have a place with you. Do it. Leads us to our next part. And if there's a place in the Bible where I want to be, where I want to be in the room, this is it. There's a couple of things that I long for, for myself, not just more for myself, but for everyone, for everyone. One of them is for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want those words to greet you in heaven. Next part, John 13, 10 is the other one. Because Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Jesus just told the disciples personally they were saved. Could you imagine having Jesus look at you and say this? It's already done. I did it. I washed you. 
You are saved. Aren't those beautiful words? Aren't those words that we long for? Isn't that the reassurance that we long for? Is to have Jesus look at us and say, you are saved. You're washed. You're made clean. Rest. I did it. Come, sit, eat. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's game over. Salvation assured. You are mine. You are my sheep, and I will not lose you. And the next part should be part of our daily lives. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to do what? To wash their feet. The rest of you is clean. Wash your feet. He said, as you walk through the world, you will get dirty. You're not immune to the filth of the world. You are not immune to sin. The mark of your life will be coming back in the washing of your feet. So how do we do that? With confession and repentance. That daily going to God for clean feet. We're going to go to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 15. It says, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. It says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and what? And forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins as we have also forgiven our our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There it is. Underline, highlight verse 12. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. Wash our feet. Make us new again today. One of the marks of a Christian is confession, repentance, understanding where and how we live, and being relentless in our pursuit of righteousness. Be relentless in your pursuit of righteousness, a right standing with God. Fight for it. Don't resign yourself to being dragged down by the world. Bring the filth and the muck to God and get washed. Then get back out on the playing field. It's in your bulletin on the left side. I put Acts 2.42. We are devoted, we are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Devoted to it. Then John again has to remind us of Judas. Judas had said the words, he had played the game, but his heart had not been changed. Every chapter of John has contained some example, some warning about unbelief and the consequences of rejecting Jesus. Again, chapter 13, the example is Judas. And what can we say about Judas? The warning of having a hard heart, a heart closed to God, are plain. Jesus says he was unwashed. He had no part of Christ, no part of redemption. Judas was not born again of the Spirit. Judas chose the darkness rather than the light. So we started today talking about love, and we're going to end today talking about love. So Jesus said a couple of things at the very end, verses uh, 13, 12 through 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place at the table. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The conclusion is simple. We are called to take the role of the servant, not the master. We choose to serve, choose to wash each other's feet. We know the hour is coming. We love Christ and we love our own to the end. Therefore, we serve. Therefore, we serve. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 14 say exactly this. Say, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge of the flesh. Rather, do what? Serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is the call. This week, we need to look for opportunities to serve each other with love. Husbands, serve your wives. Wives, serve your husbands. Moms and dads, serve your kids. Kids, serve your mom and dad. Serve your coworkers. Serve your boss. Serve your employees. Serve your customers. Serve your vendors. We look for opportunities to take the low position, the humble position, the dirty position, the unpleasant position the position that our Lord and Savior took for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for John. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for church this morning. Thank you that we get together in your name, that we get to smile and laugh and hug and shake hands. And Thank you that you bring us together. Lord, we think about our week that we have coming up and we just lift it up to you. We lift up our kids at school that you would keep them safe, that you would guard their hearts and guard their steps, that you would guard their words. We lift up our work and our, our homes to you that in those times we would not be so consumed by the things of the world, but that we could keep our eyes on you, that daily we could go before you. Father, we have so many things on our minds. We have folks that are dealing with illness, that facing rough diagnosis, that are they have battles in front of them. We lift those things up to you, Father, that you would be with doctors, that you would be with our healing professionals, that you know, if you, uh, if you felt like it, you could just take care of it. Father, either way, we give you the praise. Father, we ask that you keep us on your path that you discipline us, that you correct us, that you provide for us. We seem to see rough times ahead. We ask that you carry us through, that you provide and protect us as we see things not going well in the world. We think about brothers and sisters around the world, especially in Ukraine, that are, their homes are gone, that their families are separated, that they're having to run for their lives, guard their steps, Protect them, Father. Keep them safe. Deliver them. Turn evil away. All for your glory, Father, that you would be glorified. We ask all of that in the name of your Son, King Jesus. Amen. Let's go fellowship. I'm going to go hang out a little bit.